0: Welcome to Stage Right. I am your host, John Thorne. This is episode 71, if you're keeping score. Got a very special surprise and a special treat for you today. Welcome to Stage Right. Thanks for listening today. Okay, so I shuffled the deck and I've bumped my interview with Bill Schnee down the line for a couple of weeks because I got a call from Billy Smiley a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and he said, hey, I'm working with Honey Tree, who, for those that don't know, is a Christian music pioneer. And he said, we're working on a new song. You need to have her on your show. So Nancy and I talked. Did the call and I decided because of the timing of when she's releasing her new single, I wanted to help her launch that. So this week is part one of my conversation with Honey Tree. Next week will be part two. After that, I will get to my interview with Bill Schnee, legendary producer and engineer. So before I get to part one with Nancy today, I want to do my email question of the day. Dear John, when I listen to your show, it sounds like you're 100 years old. You have so many stories. How old are you? Okay, so Dave, I'm actually 60. Funny story, though, halfway through this week, I said to my wife, I, can't, I have four months before I turn 60. Then it occurred to me, wait, I turned 60 last year. So half of this year, I thought I was 59. But anyways, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story, right? So, um, yes, I am 60 years old, and the reason I have so many stories is there was a 20-year window, 30-year window in there where I didn't sleep a lot. And when you don't sleep, you have more time to do things that create more stories. So that's mine, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, so now for my pick of the week, I'm going to do a completely different kind of pick of the week. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I drove to Athens, Ohio, to drop my bass off to have my 1976 Fender Jazz Bass worked on by legendary—I mean, <laughs> everybody's legendary. It's—it's it's just crazy. The people that I've been able to meet, Dan Earlywine, who is like the godfather of guitar luthiers, lives down in Athens, Ohio. I found the guy on YouTube, tracked him down, called him, and asked him if he'd be interested in working on my bass. He's like, absolutely, bring it down. So I take it down to Dan. He tells me, if you can kill a couple hours in town, I might be able to get this fixed for you this afternoon. Call me in a couple hours, but in the meantime, you need to go check out Blue Eagle Music. So I go down to this little music store. It's literally an old mom and pop shop. My pick of the day is Blue Eagle Music in Athens, Ohio, you need to Google it and just check out what Frank has going on. Frank's this dude from the 70s that's had this music store for a long time. It's literally like a time capsule. You walk back in time when guitar stores were literally storefronts in every little town. They used to, every town had a music store. This music store is that time capsule. And I would even encourage you to go online and buy something from Frank just to support what he's doing because he's had, uh, the store has been around over 60 years, but these things are just, you know, the, the sweet waters of the world, guitar centers of the world have put most of these shops out of business, but go to blue Eagle music. And if you feel compelled, just buy something, buy a t-shirt, a hat, something from Frank and support him. It's the coolest little music store, and it's a blast from the past, and it's certainly something to check out for sure. So, here's part one of my conversation with Honeytree. I hope you enjoy it. Everybody, welcome to the program today. Nancy Honeytree Miller. How are you doing today, Nancy?
1: I'm doing super. Thank you, John.
0: (laughs) Well, it's an honor to have you on the show. And I remember being a preacher's kid in Michigan, uh, hearing your albums and wondering it, it always felt to me like you were from California.
1: Wow, but, cool.
0: <laughs> but tell everyone where you were born and raised.
1: In Iowa. Davenport, Iowa is my hometown.
0: Davenport, Iowa. Yes. And uh
1: My family were all classical musicians. My mom and dad made a living playing in the orchestra. My dad was a fabulous violinist and teacher, and he played chamber music, and he was a conductor. And my mother was a violist and violinist. And I I grew up in a family of all string players. And I played the cello from an early age.
0: Oh, I love the cello, very close to bass. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. It was an amazing privilege. Uh you know, there was there were chamber music rehearsals in my home. <laughs>
2: hey.
1: And uh, you know, I remember being a little girl, I was supposed to be in bed, but I I'd, I'd sit up at the top of the stairs and listen to them. They were just fabulous. Wow. And I fell in love with the cello uh, for some reason. My I, I have two sisters that played violin, but I decided on the cello at an early age and studied it since I was about seven.
0: That is just, that's remarkable to me. A, a child at seven playing a cello, that's why.
1: You know, cello, cellists have a strong left hand because those are big, fat strings you have to push down. And that really translated well into being able to play bar chords later <laughs> sure. on. When I, you
0: know. Sure, actually cello and then acoustic guitar are not an easy way to start.
1: No. And I started early... Uh, On guitar, too, because my mom was a guitar player. Like, she had a little, uh, small um, nylon string guitar. Okay. And uh, we girls all learned from an early age to play some chords. And my mom was my first guitar teacher.
0: Wow. (laughs) All right. So you're playing cello, playing guitar. Um, Tell me a little bit more about your childhood.
1: You know, as a lot of families have struggles, my my parents divorced when I was a junior in high school. Hmm. And um my other sisters were already out of the house. And so I was the only one that was still at home. So they let me go to a high school in Iowa City, which I loved. It was called University High. And it was mostly hippies went to, oh, went to that wow. school. Okay. <laughs> and I I felt fit right in um to the uh life there. Right. And that's the, those friends are the ones who first started calling me honey tree.
0: Now how did that come about?
1: Well my last name is my maiden name is Hennigbaum, which is German for honey tree.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. And so it was kind of a hippie thing to translate your name um uh, if if it was something cool, you know. Right. And so but it meant so much to me it because i had been struggling of course with the upheaval in my family and i didn't fit in well in a big social high school with the cheerleaders and the jocks you know i just like not nothing against those guys but i was just more of a arty sure. you know type and um so i when i got to go to a smaller school that was more eccentric and the people gave me a special name and, you know, yeah. it was, it was a real help. But on the other hand, I got into drugs there because hmm. it was right there in the University of Iowa, you know, uh, city. Sure. And, um, our older, some of our older brothers and sisters were, <laughs> you know, real hippies. <laughs> right. right. And all during that time, my mom was, and probably my dad, too, in his own way, were praying for me and um, so what happened was, uh my sister, Jane, moved to Fort Wayne to go to the school of fine arts she was a She was a potter, okay and um there was a great pottery teacher here at that time, and Jane invited me to visit her over Easter break. So I got on a bus and rode out to Fort Wayne to visit Jane. And a revival had started breaking out in the school, and there were young, arty, hippie type uh, radical Christians hmm. in this art school. Wow. And I met them and they and they witnessed to me, and particularly there was one guy that had was their li- little, you know was their uh leader. There, the guy was, that was leading them to the Lord is named John Lloyd. And um, he, I talked with him, and they took me to church. And anyway, I got saved. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome.
0: Well, so how old were you then?
1: I was 17. 17. I was just about to turn 18. I was a senior in high school. Wow. And I was only in Fort Wayne that time for three or four days. It was a short, you know, it was a it was a Easter break trip. Right. <laughs> but I got saved, and I had to go back to Iowa City and finish my high school, and then I had a summer job as a camp counselor, and then I um, moved to Fort Wayne in the fall, and I've lived here ever since wow. nineteen the fall of 1970.
0: Wow that's a long time to be in one place.
1: It's amazing.
0: Okay okay so you get saved you move to Fort Wayne at what point in your journey mm-hmm. did you learn or discover that you love to write songs or that you could write songs?
1: Yeah well I was a song and a songwriter and a poet at from a very early age. Okay. I mean like I remember making up little songs and poems all along the way. They weren't, you know, they weren't anything good, but (laughs) I was just creative. Yes. And, um, and then as I was, you know, as I was maturing, you know, even in Davenport, I remember we had Joan Baez albums and I would sit and try to figure out what she was playing. And you know, just see if I could do it, right. you know? And then of course I fell in love with Carol King and Joni Mitchell and James Taylor and Judy Collins. And, you know, just listen to all, uh, Janis Joplin even, you know, I mean, right. I, there, it was just so many sounds that we loved during that time. Peter, Paul and Mary, mm. um, you know, just, Tremendous things, and even I don't know how I got an album of a Brazilian uh, guitarist named Luiz Bonfa who played uh, Bossa Nova, and that just blew me away. I loved the sound of those chords, you know.
2: Right.
1: And so I just was learning to play all these different things that I—I I was making up my own way of playing these sounds that I loved, you know. Sure. But it, I wasn't really. I wrote maybe a few songs, uh, before I got saved, but they would, they would have been very morose, you know, very like self-centered and (laughs) self-pitying and, you know, know?
0: (laughs) which wasn't, which wasn't uncommon for the time.
1: (laughs) No, no. Uh, But, and then when I got saved, I was just so excited about Jesus that I wanted to sing, you know, I, I just, I couldn't help but sing about it and write about it. And Clean Before My Lord was actually the second song that I wrote. Oh, geez. Um, Wow. I just came, it just flowed, you know. Right. But it sounds very, very Carol King-ish if Mm. you listen, you know, to the chord progressions and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was just, uh, I loved all of those guys and very affected by it all.
0: Right. Okay. So before we get too far past it, I want to go back to something real quick. Mm-hmm. You said your parents at one point were praying for you. Um, did you grow up in a Christian home? Did you go to church? How did God factor into your family?
1: My mom was a Christian. She um, she was an Episcopalian Okay. and raised us in church and I was baptized and confirmed and went to Sunday school and went to church and everything. So I was an episcopalian but I I had not connected with Jesus in a personal way that I wouldn't say that I was born again at that time. But the, you know that was a good background. Sure. Uh but then as you know as you get older and you realize you've got this strange empty loneliness inside that you're trying to find the answer to that, you know Right. It doesn't seem right to be all alone on the inside. But you think you know what Christianity is because you were raised as a you know in the church and so then you think, well maybe it's this or that, you know, maybe it's this this philosophy or maybe it's that, maybe it's music, or maybe it's relationships, or maybe it's drugs, you know. Right. (laughs) You're just trying to find something, you know. Yeah. To uh to fill that space. Right. And so, you know, that I think that was the the first real revelation to me about being a Christian was how Jesus sends the Holy Spirit inside and and he lives there. Right. And he fills that void, you know. Yeah. Um, that that was just awesome. But I forget what where we where did we start on that question? I've gone off on a rabbit trail. I think.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. You're fine. We were just talking about how God intersected with your family.
1: Oh, with my family, yeah. So my mother was was an Episcopalian, and she was she loved the formality of church. You know, the the pipe organ, the the choir processing in the, you know, the liturgy and everything really touched my mother. She could really connect with the Lord through that. Right. And. Uh, Me, you know, it took, I mean, she prayed for me, but I think this is a classic example of God does exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or even imagine, because what the Lord did to answer her prayer was connect me to the Jesus people, right? which my mother could never have even imagined. She
0: wanted him to connect you to her people. These
1: radical hippie (laughs) Christians that were Pentecostal, you know, I mean, it just wasn't on her radar. (laughs) But she prayed and, um, and God, you know, moved me to where they were so it, because he knew that I could hear that voice, right? you know, and so then uh, my mother, you know, when I came back home and told her I'd gotten saved, she was kind of puzzled by it because she really didn't think in those terms, you know, although over the years I realized that she'd definitely was a christian Mm -hmm. but she she didn't think in terms of a conversion experience where you were born again you know that was just not really part of her vocabulary yeah so it kind of took me some time to grow up in the lord to where i could recognize my mom as a christian Ah. Uh, i was trying to get her saved at the the beginning you know
0: oh that's (laughs) interesting
1: and she was she was always so sweet about it you know right she really was and she was amazing um how she was just easy to talk to yeah she was always that way and uh, my dad was was um one of those people who was very never really spoke much about his his beliefs yeah um but as we you know as we got closer and closer over the years my dad and my sisters and I um we realized that you know only god could have saved him he was he was a um world war 2 vet hmm. and um he got drafted when he was in college studying the violin and he and they made him an officer oh wow and he then was in very dangerous situations in hmm. in Europe uh, in the European front. Wow. And so you know, God saved him. Yeah. <laughs> preserved him, you know. Right. And he knew that. So when I he didn't have like an outward expression of his face. Hmm. Like he didn't go to church, but Sure. He he would come on Easter and Christmas and stuff like that, you know. Right. But he wouldn't receive communion but then the oddest thing happened when my mother my mother passed away when she was 86 Wow! and in those few days as we were just with her Mm -hmm. the pastor uh, came in and brought her communion and my dad received communion and that was the first time I'd ever seen him do it in my life and it just broke my heart and touched me so much. You know, I thought, wow, my dad, my dad really, <laughs> yeah. you know, wants Jesus. He just has a hard time talking about it, you know. Right. So after that, whenever I visited him, I just dragged him off with me to church, and I called <laughs> it Church Adventures, and we made it funny, and, you know. That's but scary. he would receive communion after that, you know. Oh, cool. And then one day, in we were sitting in the kitchen, um, and I just had felt, in the middle of the night, I had felt like the Lord said, I want you to to uh, read him the first chapter of John mm. tomorrow morning. That's cool. And so I did. And we talked about how to receive Christ, you know, because it says those to those who receive him, to them become the children of God, you know. Yeah. And um, he prayed and asked Jesus to come into his heart at that
0: time. Now, how old was he?
1: Oh, he was in his nineties, probably by then. Oh,
0: you know, that is that's special.
1: Yeah, that was awesome. But you know, I I'm sure God heard his prayers all his whole life. You know what I sure. mean? Sure. <laughs> yep. I mean, he would have never survived what he went through.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that made it where you didn't have to wonder at all.
1: Absolutely, it was a gift to me. It was a real gift to me that. Yes. That uh, yeah, that he was going to be fine. Yeah. So.
0: That's beautiful. All right. So you're in Fort Wayne. Your dad is saved. Tell me this part of your story where the Christian blossoming Christian music scene, which is just starting to create momentum, contemporary Christian music. How did you get discovered or how did they hear about you in Fort Wayne?
1: Yeah, it was just beginning. I got, I got in on the ground floor. That was, that was just perfect because, um, the type of music I do is all over the map, you know? I mean, one minute I'm doing a, a yee-haw, ain't it grand to be a Christian, <laughs> you know, brass thing. Right. And then I'm doing something Bossa Nova and then something kind of boogie-woogie. And I'm just, you know, it's hard to right. find a category. So I needed to be in on the beginning when Christian radio just played everything it could that anything it could find. Yes. You know? yep. <laughs> and it, it was great. It was great for us that we had such creative freedom, and in, you know, in those days. Yeah. But uh, after I moved to Fort Wayne, we were just so privileged to have a really big uh, um, movement of the Jesus movement here in Fort Wayne. Uh, under the leadership of John Lloyd, there was a coffee house called Adam's Apple.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we had a concert every Friday night and every Monday night we had Bible study and we did other outreaches on the weekends. And so all of the artists that were on the road, you know, came by when they were in the Midwest, they came to Fort Wayne. And so we, you know, we got to hear Second Chapter Vax and Larry Norman and Mike Warnke came and Phil Kagi was just, over there in Youngstown, Ohio. He wasn't very far from us. He came all the time. Oh, wow. And so, um, and I was writing songs, and I was just learning to lead singing, you know, choruses. We used kind of, we used a lot of sort of Sunday school songs, um, you know. Yeah. In the beginning, even, you know, uh, Father Abraham had many sons. And-
0: <laughs> right you know right
1: and uh running and leaping and praising God and you know we just had fun with the singing and then I started writing things like clean before my lord and I would just I would just play them for the people and it was amazing I didn't know if they were any good or if people would connect but they really did and so that just encouraged me to write more and um after a while I had you know, um, a, a group of songs, and then uh, one of the associate pastors of the church that was like the mother church over our youth, our the Adams Apple Coffee House. Uh, he said, "Well, you know, let's go make an album." So he made arrangements, and we went to Nashville, and oh my goodness, we um, worked with the um, backup. The studio players were the people that what you know we're with the Oak Ridge boys
2: right
1: and when they weren't on the road they they did studio work and so we just had this very short session I just basically you know sat with the players went through the songs they were calling out to each other the numbers of the chords that's how they did it was by number <laughs> yeah. and then um, writing them down on little scraps of paper and then we would just Run through it once or twice, and then the red light would go on, and we'd record it. It was, <laughs> you know, but we we recorded an album that was called Honey Tree. It had Clean Before My Lord on it, mm-hmm. and Honey Tree, and mm-hmm. it had uh, uh, the wedding song, which I called Treasures, which was sung in tons of weddings. Um, anyway, it was just it was just a, a self titled album. Yeah. And um, we, it was a custom album. We just, you know, made a thousand copies of it, and I sold them at my little coffee house gigs. But then that album was uh, taken up by Word Records, hmm. and then um, uh, then they gave me a record deal to do some more.
0: Right. Do you remember how many albums they gave you, or any specifics about your first contract?
1: I don't remember that my I didn't negotiate the same got pastor who you know um his name was Paul Pano and he um did all the negotiating okay with word, and so I just remember that um you know they financed the next album and and the, those the next few after that, sure and that there was you know there was a deal like mostly I didn't make any money from the actual albums because the the deal was the album sales were supposed to pay back the production costs sure uh, but since I was the writer of the songs where I made money was on the publishing yes um and that was good they were they were a really good publisher so and then, of course, the radio play also was,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, you make money then from, from radio play and stuff. So, Right. But I never sold enough albums to really pay back the production cost. So, <laughs> well, so they, like, stuck that up. But they liked it because they made a lot of money on the songs. Sure. So they were half owner of the songs. So yep. they still are all, all those early ones.
0: Right. Okay, so you're in Fort Wayne. You're a Midwest hippie. You have to tell me, was the resistance to hippies in the church the same in Fort Wayne as it would have been in California, which was much more liberal and where you would expect more hippies to be? Mm-hmm. Because the Midwest is much more conservative.
1: Yes, the, the Midwest is very beautifully conservative, I think, in a, certain, in a way. Um, I mean, I, I'm grateful for it. but. Yeah, the church particularly is conservative. I mean, um, the Bible believing church and the Pentecostal church is right. even more conservative, you right. know? Yep. Uh, and that's where God landed us. And we were just blessed because we had a pastor named um, Dr. Paul E. Pano, mm-hmm. who was listen to God and it was not easy for him John Lloyd first came to talk to him and um, he John was very hippie looking he had this long this long mustache and he his hair was long and he wore a a leather vest with fringe and bell-bottom blue jeans and you know he was clean he was always well presented and clean but he was very hippie looking right and um but he just was passionate about jesus he had gotten saved Mm. and he wanted to tell people he was a true evangelist at heart and so when when he talked to reverend paino um pastor paino just felt the lord really speak to him that he was supposed to help this young man and so there was a group of a small group of uh, other hippie converts around John, and they started um, attending Calvary Temple. And yes, there was resistance to it, especially when the group, it really started growing. Of course. (laughs) You know. Becoming
0: um, more successful than the mainstream church.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, and it was like, it was like, I always likened it to, you know, they got invaded by creatures from outer space, basically. <laughs> I mean, how could they relate, you know, to these young right. people and the way they were dressed and guys with long hair and
2: right.
1: times, you know, wearing jeans to church and and, and sandals and, and maybe, maybe just not looking like they were saved mm-hmm. according to the, you know, the older people. But yet, um, Reverend Pano just really felt it was the Lord moving. He really saw Jesus in us and he took this dangerous stance. He said, he said many times over the pulpit, we don't tell people what to wear to church. The Holy Spirit tells people what to wear to church. Hmm. And, um, you know, that's really a dangerous thing to say because the Holy Spirit doesn't really care very much what you wear to church. <laughs> you know, it just wants you there, right? <laughs> like however you are. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's somewhere on His list of priorities, but it's certainly not on the top. You know. Right. And so we slowly we did clean up and you know and change as we were getting being discipled. But it was never a requirement. Yeah. Um. And that that did caused some people to react very negatively. And at the beginning, there was a crisis where people had said, we're going to stop giving unless you get these young people out of here.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: And he, he just, he told his wife, I'm going to go in my office and I'm going to pray and I'm not going to come out until God tells me what to do. And, you know, I, he was there like, I don't know how long, maybe a whole, maybe 24 hours or something. Hmm. It was remarkable that, you know, in her memory and when he came out, she said, well, what did the Lord say to you? And, and he said, whosoever will. Hmm. So he just stayed with it. He stuck with his stand that uh we're not going to tell these people what to wear. and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sure he lost some people over that, but on the other hand, the the revival just busted out, and and um, but I think the church really got blessed. It was like they passed a test or something, right? And they got blessed in a lot of other ways, like they had a big bus ministry that roamed around the city and picked up kids to bring them to Sunday school, and that you know just it grew. By leaps and bounds and and then they some of the you know the the hippies that were getting saved wanted to study the Bible, so they started a uh, Bible school and that grew and then and, and then eventually they started planting churches and became like a fellowship of churches
2: mm-hmm.
1: as a result yeah. you know so there was a uh, there was kind of a testing. Definitely there was a testing for them. Yeah. But, um, but they passed the test. Right. And that was to us, that was essential because, you know, when we, we were, we were evangelistic. And so we would go out on the streets or in the parks, or we would all pile into a bus and, and blitz a community for the day or something. And, and, we would run into every false doctrine as we were witnessing to people. Hmm. And there were, and then there would be like, even in our meetings, there would be uh, cults that would come in and try to persuade, Hmm. you know, people to believe, you know, weird stuff. Right. And so we were always like trooping into Pastor Pano's office with our Bibles and saying, what about this? You know, this is, (laughs) And we were learning like, you know, just growing like weeds because uh, we just were, you know, experiencing it and eating the word of God, you know, and just, wow, it was great. So, so he spent a lot of time training us. Um, and, you know, he was just a great Bible teacher. Yeah. And then John Lloyd caught that from him and became a great Bible teacher in South. So we had tremendous training, just, you know, our every Monday night Bible study. Hmm. And then all the activity that we were doing, we were just learning so much. Sure. And we were producing a lot of literature. We, we had uh, a staff writer and a staff artist hmm. that were writing in a hippie style and artwork in a hippie style And we made a a, um, newspaper called Hardcore. And it was an evangelistic. It was a a newspaper, but it was a tract, you know, like evangelism. Right. And we would just hand those out. And um, they always, you know, had the plan of salvation. But they were really fun. We had this cartoon character called Norman New Creature. And he, this guy with this huge afro, you know, that was saved. Right. And Norman New Creature was always having adventures, you know, and
0: <laughs> that's great.
1: Telling people how to get saved. <laughs> right. And there was just so many fun things, you know.
0: All creative.
1: But so we were expressing the gospel, and we didn't, you know, we didn't get off um, doctrinally, but it was just in a very hippie language. Mm-hmm. And,
0: lots of fun sure okay so you had all of the stuff you're doing in ministry in Fort Wayne and then you have this blossoming music career what was it like to have a career in the early stages of Jesus music while doing the other stuff you were doing because I know you're still to this day heavily involved in ministry there in Fort Wayne and around the world yeah so how did you do both
1: well, it's just fabulous. I mean, I cannot thank God enough for the opportunity um, and the honor of being a part of those pioneering uh, Jesus musicians. Yes. But um, what happened here in Fort Wayne was John Lloyd was leading the coffee house called Adam's Apple, and I was his secretary. Okay. And at first, it was very humble beginnings. We had our our office was in the uh, lower floor of a house. My office was the kitchen. Hmm. Um, we we had meetings in the sort of combined living dining room area. Um, the, the artist lived in the walk in closet. I mean, <laughs> you know, very <laughs> humble beginnings, right? Uh, and then God gave us a, a little bit of a larger facility where we had we had an office and and at the back there was there had been this uh car repair garage that we converted into a meeting space and everybody sat on the floor where there was a little platform in one corner like but then you know the seating was just on the floor and uh we were there for quite a while and then but I was the secretary and I was learning to do things like thank you know send thank you notes to people for their offerings and um i had to mail out the um newspaper we had we had a a mailing list which i had to keep and maintain and it, at one point it grew to 10,000 people were on this mailing list oh
2: my goodness and
1: it was a free subscription and at that time you know you it wasn't <laughs> Uh, digital like it is today you actually had you know (laughs) three by five or no you know little note cards sure size they are it's not three by five yeah um and you had you then had to make these metal plates and there was a mailing machine where these trays of plates would feed through this machine and then the, the newspapers would come and the machine would stamp, you know, mm-hmm. of the address on each one. And I remember I had really long hair and one day my a piece of my hair got caught oh, no. in this <laughs> machine. Oh. oh, my goodness. <laughs> Tore out like a quarter-sized piece of hair. <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. But anyway, I was learning... I Was learning from being in the ministry. I was learning like the what how much you work to be the place where people come and play. You know, we hosted Second Chapter, we hosted Larry Norman, we hosted Phil Kagi, you know, um, Pat Terry, uh, Children of the Day, uh, Malcolm and Alan, just you know, on and on and on. You know, they played. Right, And so we we were the hosts and I was part of that team of people and um, the advertising and the, you know, the just everything. And but I was also learning, you know, because I would open up with um, leading worship and I would sing my songs. And I also had little coffeehouse gigs around the area that I was doing. So I was developing, you know, learning how to be a music minister right. myself. And then I did that for five years. So I got saved in 1970 and I started recording in 73, but I didn't go on the road full time until 75. So I had all of those five years to really, like, get grounded in the Lord and and just develop a sense of what ministry was all about behind the scenes. Right. Um, so then when I, I went on the road, I, I always have a lot of respect for those who are inviting me, you know, um, I, because I know they're the ones that are taking the risk. They're throwing the party and hoping somebody will come, you know, (laughs) they're putting the bill. Sure. And, um, so I've just always been very grateful and respectful to those who, who have, Go on that step of faith, you know. Yeah. To invite to have these events. So, anyway, I I did start getting radio play after after Word picked up my my album in 1974. Um, they then it just started being played on the radio all over the place. So then I got invited to do concerts farther away from home sure and um so then i was you know i needed to uh, devote my time to that full time but i was still a part of the adam's apple even though i couldn't be on the staff after 1975
0: oh okay so give me an idea give us a list of people that came through fort wayne that you met that you later ended up getting to share the stage with, and tour with, and become peers with.
1: Well, i I didn't. I traveled with um, Mike Warnke quite a bit at the beginning, um, and then I, I at festivals, I became good friends with Evie. Oh. And that was a tremendous privilege. I yeah. just appreciated her friendliness. And we would just, we would try to get a hotel room together so we could talk all night because we were two single women that were on the road for Jesus, you know, and we right. just like had so much to talk <laughs> over. <laughs> and um, uh, she she shared, um, because she had been, she was younger than me, but she had been on the road way longer than I had. She was she had started like when she was 13 or something oh, amazing yeah. and was just known all over the world. And so she was way shrewder than I was as far as the experience of it all, you right. know. And uh, she just was so sweet to me. And but she told me um, and then, you know, she had sung uh clean before my lord and i don't have to worry both of those songs of mine and that that had really affected me because whatever she sang then there was all kinds of like arrangements of that people would write orchestral arrangements <laughs> and choir arrangements and it would be in print you know and so because she was winning you know vocal female vocalist of the year double award hmm. for years at that point you know sure and so, um, that she had done those two songs of mine had really been a positive effect for me. And then, um, but talking to her, I, I really became impressed with her, like as a Christian, you know, she, she really was very intent, intentionally being, a a gospel singer and not using her platform to do anything else other than just glorify the Lord. And, and I, I was impressed by that. And so um, I wrote a song for her called live for Jesus, which um, I, I, you know, is, I sing it myself, but I wrote it to be her testimony that I, I want to be remembered as a girl who sang her songs for Jesus Christ.
2: Right. And
1: she had told me that uh, there were miracles that she had heard about in two occasions on two separate continents it happened that somebody was profoundly deaf and the only thing they could hear was when they put a needle down on an Evie record.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Yes. And so I wrote in Live for Jesus, I wrote... I'm singing for the deaf man who can hear about salvation through my song. Oh, wow. And that but it's a, it was really inspired by that testimony of a miracle, you know, two miracles that God had done. Yeah. So, yeah. So that that's a, that's really neat. But yeah, she was, she was a huge blessing and of course I met Larry Norman and he was so um like awesome. You know, you you couldn't you couldn't stop talking to him. He was so fascinating. He he was just brilliant. Yeah. And he he was really kind of like our Bob Dylan. Hmm. You know. Yeah. And I, and he was he was always just a big hit whenever we had him come. And uh, you know, and he did like talking to people, but he was. He wasn't somebody you got close to personally. I felt more like a friend of Second Chapter, like Buck Herring and Annie and Nellie and Matthew. You know, they were just more like you could hang with them. You know, right? And um, we we stayed not, you know, we we never lived close to each other or anything, but I know that they had kind of a big brother and sister feeling toward me yeah yeah and it was lovely so i appreciated them and jamie owens collins hmm. was sweet and uh, barry Maguire. oh barry mcguire <laughs> yeah um yeah he had a television program um that he hosted he was like the host of at one point early on and i remember being able to do like Couple of shows with him. Oh, that's cool. And that he was so like liquid love just flowed out of the guy Hmm. that he totally cured me of feeling afraid of cameras, of television cameras. Like I just, because of him being there with me on the show, it just became so fun. Right. (laughs) And, uh, that was really cool <laughs> that's great he, and he was he was a, an awesome person to know and then Randy Stonehill and um, we we actually got to know Andre Crouch oh cool pretty well
0: that's great
1: he was he would come to Calvary temple and and do concerts and of course they were just electrifying mm-hmm. in fact I remember specifically being a fan of Andre and of Evie, and like being in awe of their stage presence hmm. Hmm. you know, like that the the way that certain artists have Carmen had this too, where the whole room belonged to them, right. you know yeah there, there was just like from the moment they step on the stage, it's just <laughs> like they're they're so charismatic and and you know, captivating. Right. In different ways, each one of those artists, you know, Carmen and Effie and Andre. Yep. And I, I started getting a real, like, inferiority complex about it all. Hmm. Yeah, I really struggled. I, I went, God, I'm just so boring. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, You know, like, Andre has this huge sound and uh, all that energy and backup singers. And, you mm, know, wow. Effie was just so
0: cute you know (laughs) yeah okay so (laughs) when you dealt with that oh how
1: how did you work through that oh it took me quite a while really i mean i felt i struggled with feeling way inferior like um just boring you know one girl with a guitar i just thought lord you know gosh it's just not interesting enough and the Lord would say to me, "Be yourself on the stage." Right. And I struggled so hard with that because I thought I am just too boring, Lord. You know, this is the music business. You've got to understand. You know. Right. <laughs> and um, uh, and I just struggled and struggled with it. Wow. And I remember, um, I mean, like I started, I started recording in '73. And I struggled with it until, so about three years, I was just like, oh, gosh. Wow. And um, I remember one time in 76, okay, I was at the Greenbelt Festival in England. And this was a big outdoor, you know, it's a Jesus Festival, but it's in England. Yeah. Like 5,000 people in the crowd outside or something, you know. Right. And I'm going on stage after a big fancy rock band.
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, like with synthesizers and you know, <laughs> everything. Right. I'm gonna go on stage one girl with a guitar. I didn't even use tracks or anything, you know. So I'm backstage in the tent, um, just complaining to the Lord about it, agonizing and and um saying, and and God, I'm just too boring. And he said to me one more time, be yourself on the stage. And I actually got mad and I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to go out there and do it. I'm going to be myself. And when I fall flat on my face, it's going to be all your fault. Wow. (laughs) And so I went out and I don't know how I just decided to be as hip as hick as I could be, you know ain't it grand to be a Christian, yee you know, clap your hands, raise your hands over your head, and <laughs> clap your hands, you know.
0: Right.
1: And the audience became like they were one person. Oh, my gosh. Something happened to the atmosphere. Wow. To And the whole set was just powerful. Hmm. And when I, to the point where, when I got up, from my chair. Cause I, sit, I even sit down and play guitar. I mean, so, you know, like so not.
0: right, right. <laughs> you
1: know? And uh, when I got up to try to walk off the stage, my knees were like jelly because the power that had been flowing, you know? right. And, and I knew it wasn't me. I knew it was the Lord. And so when I got off the stage, I got by myself with the Lord and I just said, I'm so sorry. I, I think I see what you're talking about that you know you want me to be simple and vulnerable and even weak wow because you want the power that flows out of that to be you so everybody knows <laughs> especially me <laughs> you know that it's God right and so and so i i've tried to do that hmm. um, you know i've tried to hold on to that lesson sure um, throughout these years
0: Thank you for tuning in today, next Friday. Part two of my conversation with Nancy Honeytree Miller. Have a fantastic week, everyone. We will see you next Friday.